is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. Financial advisor, wealth advisor, certified financial planner, all those good titles. A little plug here for about the second segment. I'm going to be joined today by Patrick Connor, who's the uh, state director for the Washington, or for the National Federation of Independent Businesses. And he'll be talking about some of the legislative items that we've seen come before the legislature this first week. But before we get there, let's go ahead and talk about our weekly wrap for the week. And the stock market has started 2023 on a decidedly strong note. This week looked a lot like last week, with the main indices logging decent gains on the basis of the Fed won't have to raise rates as much as feared, and the U.S. economy may see a soft landing after all. Market participants settled into a wait-and-see trade style in the first half of the week in, in front of the Fed Chair Powell's speech on Tuesday, the December Consumer Price Index on Thursday, and the Bank Earnings Report on Friday that marked the official start of the fourth quarter earnings reporting season. Fed Chair Powell gave a speech titled Central Bank Independence Tuesday morning. Investors may have felt it emboldened because Mr. Powell did not purposely kill the market's rebound activity in his speech. He did, however, acknowledge that restoring price stability when inflation is high can require measures that are not popular in the short term as we raise rates to slow the economy. The latter point notwithstanding, the S&P 500 was able to close above technical resistance at its 50-day moving average. And on Thursday, by Thursday's opening, market participants were just digesting the much-anticipated December CPI report. It was in line with the market's hopeful expectations that it would show continued disinflation in total CPI from 7.1% year-over-year to 6.5%, and that core CPI went from 6% year-over-year to 5.7%. Those were pleasing headline numbers, but it's worth noting that services inflation, which the Fed watches closely, did not improve and rose to 7.5% year-over-year from 7.2% in November. That understanding did not seem, yeah, that understanding did not seem to hold back the stock or bond market. The price action in those markets on Thursday generally supported the view that the Fed will pause its rate hikes sooner rather than later. In fact, the Fed Fund's futures market now prices in a 67% probability of the target range of the Fed funds rate peaking at four and a, four and a quarter, four and three quarters percent to five percent in May, versus fifty five point two percent a week ago, according to the CME Fed Watch tool. The positive price action in the stock market was particularly notable, considering that the big move leading to the CPI report, the S and P five hundred was up three point seven percent for the year entering Thursday and up 4.4% from its low of 3,802 on January 5th. When Friday's trade began, though market participants decided to make some profits, take some profits following the big run, ahead of the open, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup reported mixed quarterly results relative to expectations that featured increasing provisions for credit losses. These stocks languished out of the gate, as did broader market. But true to form, so far in 23, buyers returned and bought the weakness. Before long, the bank's stocks were back in positive territory, and so was the broader market. The S&P 500 moved above its 200-day moving average of 3,981 on the rebound trade and closed the week a whisker shy of 4,000. Only two of the S&P 500 sectors closed with a loss for this week. Healthcare was down two tenths of one percent. Consumer staples down one and a half percent. 
while the heavily weighted consumer discretionary was up 5.8%, and information technology was up 4.6%, and those were the sectors that logged in the biggest gains. The two-year Treasury note yield fell five basis points to 4.22%, and the 10-year note fell six basis points to 3.51%. The U.S. dollar index fell 1.6% this week to 102.18. And the West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures made strides in the upside this week, rising 8.5% to $80.06 a barrel. Natural gas futures fell 4.8% to $3.23 per million BTUs. So looking at where the market is after the first week of trading, we found that the Dow Jones and average, or the first couple of weeks, I guess we should say now, Dow Jones Industrial Average for, is, for the year is up 3.5%. The NASDAQ is up 5.9%. Your S&P 500 index is up 4.2%. And the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index is up over 7%. So some pretty good moves there in the first couple of weeks of the year. So let's take a look at our high-frequency data this week. And um, basically what we're looking at here, we've got uh, initial jobless claims as of January 6th, 205,000. Uh, that was actually a drop of additional half percent. Now compared to two, 2019, there were 222,000 initial claims. So that's an improvement there of about 17,000 between uh, now and what we were seeing in 2019. Uh, continuing jobless claims, uh, 1,634,000. That was also an improvement of 3.7%. Then looking at box office receipts, these have been really volatile. But this is uh, from the week ending January 6th to the 12th, uh, a drop of 19.3% in the box office receipts for the week. Rail car traffic, uh, as of January 6th, actually had a big increase of about 14%. That had been kind of lagging here in the last few weeks. Uh, steel production, as of the 9th of January, was down four-tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy, as of the 7th of January, uh, was down 12.9%. That was averaging 47.2%, a little, little below half. Now, compared to 2019, it was at 48.9%. And then... Uh, up the open uh, the open table state of restaurant industry took a big drop, down almost eighteen percent. TSA checkpoint data: one million nine hundred sixty thousand five hundred eleven passengers a day for the week ending the twelfth of January. That was down about eight percent. The supply of motor gasoline as of the sixth of January was up about six tenths of one percent. And seeing starting to see people travel overseas quite a bit here. As of January 12th, 104,563 flights a day. That compares to the 105,396 in 2019, so almost back to 2019 levels. But that was an increase of 5.3% for the week. So we're going to go ahead and take a break. We'll be back shortly. Uh, when we do come back, we're going to have uh, Patrick Connor uh, join us with the NFIB. And we're going to talk about what's taking place in the Washington State Legislature. So we'll be back in a moment. Thank you. The winter savings continue at Linden Sheet Metal. The holidays are over, but it's not too late to buy a gift for your home and save money while doing it. Linden Sheet Metal has furnace, air conditioner, and heat pump discounts up to $900. Utility rebates up to $1,500. And beginning January 1, there are tax credits up to $2,000 off. And it doesn't end there. Showroom fireplace models are discounted 40%, and new fireplaces are $300 off installation. The benefits of a new energy-efficient fireplace, heating, or cooling system will help you save on future energy bills and can increase the value of your home. Call Linden Sheet Metal today to schedule a free estimate. Our consultants will come out and find the best solution for your home. We also offer easy financing with low monthly payments. Now is a great time to upgrade your home. Linden Sheet Metal, serving the Northwest for over 80 years. Imagine living in Linden, perched above the Nooksack River Valley with Mount Baker and the Cascade Mountains in the distance. Enjoy the peaceful surroundings of the mountains and nearby golf course. Make new friends and get involved in new activities. Enjoy fabulous home-cooked meals and spacious apartments designed with your needs in mind. Enjoy your independence. Visit Linden Manor today on Aaron Drive in Linden next to Bender Ballfields or at lindenmanor.com. Call Janet to arrange your personal tour and see why the residents love Linden Manor. 
KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. I happen to believe that the Bellingham, Whatcom County, uh, the Fraser River Delta, Nooksack, is an enormous healing area. Each weekday at 4 p.m. I'm the old dog. When I walk down railroad, I'm the one who knows who just got here and who didn't. I see them, they're so angry from where they came from, and then through the years, they mellow out because there's a healing energy here. On KGMI 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live here with you this Saturday morning. And for those that don't know, we are Asset Advisors. We're located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center. That's out there next to Wilson's Furniture off of I-5. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. Check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. Go over there under Insights. Really good information on what we saw happening in last year's market. Great great call that we had this week on Thursday, so that's available for you. Okay, well, today we've got Patrick Connor with us again. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? Good morning, Dick. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the program again. Well, we appreciate it. I think this is either the third or fourth year. I've kind of lost track that we've had you on here. <laughs> but I got to yeah. thinking about it. We keep talking about you being the state director for the NFIB, I happen to think, you know, maybe some of our listeners don't know who the NFIB is. So you want to give us a little uh, insight as to who the NFIB is? I'd be happy to. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, NFIB is the nation's leading small business advocacy organization. In fact, we've been the voice of small business for 80 years now. Uh, we have representatives uh, in Washington, D.C., as well as all 50 state capitals to ensure that policymakers hear from small business owners on the issues that impact those small business owners the most every day. Uh, Basically, what we do is we advocate, uh, we influence, we provide data through our Small Business Economic Trends Report, or uh, a lot of times in the news they'll call it our Optimism Index. Uh, And when necessary, we are also willing to go all the way to the Supreme Court through our legal center in order to protect and promote the rights of our members to own their businesses that operate them as they see fit and to grow those enterprises to be prosperous. So um, that's in a nutshell what NFIB does for its small business members. Great. What's your role? You're state director. so Yes. Uh, so as Washington State uh, Director, uh, I'm responsible for being the voice of small business here in Olympia and statewide on behalf of the more than 7,000 Washington-based small business owner. So I'm the one that goes to the Washington State uh, Capitol on a daily basis during session to talk to lawmakers to express our point of view based on our member ballots, uh, organize uh, days on the Hill where our members are able to join us in person again now for the first time in, in two years at least, and share their experiences directly with legislators to help better inform those lawmakers about how the decisions they make in Olympia affect us statewide, whether it's in uh, Bellingham, Vancouver, Spokane, or Seattle. Well, that's great. Now, you sent out your uh, first legislative update for the year yesterday. Uh, I noticed that it wasn't as uh, jam-packed as normal. Uh, the first week <laughs> of the session, there doesn't seem to be as many issues coming up. I would expect that we're going to see more to come. Is that right? Absolutely, we'll see more. But uh, during the first week of session, um, we have a lot of ceremonial activities that take place. So, for instance, on Monday, a lot of time was spent in the legislature's opening ceremonies, swearing in 147 legislators. Um, Tuesday, we had the state of the state address by the governor. Wednesday, we had the state of the judiciary address. Uh, and because there are so many brand new legislators this year, um, or freshmen that have never been on the Capitol grounds because of the COVID closures. A lot of time is being spent this first week or two explaining through the committee process what the different agencies do, what the different programs are the legislature oversees through those committees. And so really it's an opportunity for um, particularly 
uh, brand new legislators to learn about their roles, their responsibilities, uh, and who the, the agency folks are that are responsible to um, enact the programs the legislature passes. So at least for the first week and a half, we got to coast just a little bit with a whole lot of learning sessions about different state agencies. So this is, we know, I guess the 68th Washington State Legislature session, as I understand it. Uh, let's go ahead and go through some of the items that uh, you've kind of outlined here that impact businesses. And let's start out with that House Bill 1068. Talk about what it is and uh, what your position is on it. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, the first week I haven't got all the numbers memorized yet. That's the one concerning uh, injured workers' rights during uh, compelled medical. Goods. Oh, yes, yes. I'm, thank you so much, Dick. I appreciate that. So. Our workers' comp system was established as a no-fault system, allowing injured workers to get the treatment they need um, and to get wage replacement as they heal and recover before they go back to work in, again, a no-fault system. Part of that process is that if there is some question by the department or another interested party, uh, the employer or the employee, about the medical status of a worker um, and the department is not satisfied with the information they may have, from the worker's doctor, um, they will do what's called an independent medical examination where the worker goes in and sees a, a, a labor and industry certified doctor and gets a report back to verify the status of that injured worker. That could result in a benefit increase um, if the full range of, of illnesses or injuries have not been properly um, listed by the attending provider. Uh, it could also potentially lead to a different determination about the status of well-being of that of that worker, allowing them to go to back uh, back to work perhaps more quickly than what the department previously believed. So, it's an essential independent review of the medical condition of the worker. Unfortunately, uh, the trial lawyers are again back trying to tilt the uh, the field a little bit. Um, so, this bill effectively would say that Dick, if, if you're an injured worker. You'd be able to bring me as your buddy into the examination. I'd be able to flip out my phone and record audio and video. And then if we decide that it suits our case, your case, be able to submit that at some point in the future. Uh, obviously, there's some concern about the uh, chain of custody of that video, uh, about the professionalism <laughs> of the videographer, uh, and about how taking those videos, particularly if they're unannounced, uh, might impact the uh, phys- the phys- uh, physical itself and the status of the worker's health. Well, so, this day and age of uh, technology, it's really easy to cut and paste these type of things. So, yes, and often easy to edit them without a whole lot of training. So, uh, we believe that if these uh, independent medical examinations are going to be recorded, they should be done the same way that would happen in other types of insurance. You have a serious car injury, and you have to go in for an independent medical exam. There is a a very thorough process of vetting the person who is going to be doing the videography, uh, and then a a method of saving that information in a way that it can't be tampered with between the time the uh, video is taken and then delivered to the Department of of, uh, Labor and Industry. So, sorry, a long description of a, because it's a little complex and uh, into the weeds kind of bills that we're already dealing with in week one of the legislature. I guess the question I have on this one is, wouldn't there be kind of an intimidation ba- 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 uh, problem maybe with a medical professional as far as their exam process and what have you? If somebody sitting there recording everything that they do, I would think that would be a little intimidating for them as well. And I would think so, particularly if you weren't used to it. Uh, so until that process became a little bit more common, certainly I think that the doctor might uh, be a little bit intimidated by having somebody they don't know pointing a camera at their face while they're trying to um, conduct a physical examination of a patient. So, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, well, I see that the NFIB actually opposes this bill just for the sake of our listeners understanding what the position of the NFIB is. Tell you what, we're going to go ahead and take a break a little early here. We're going to come back, and we come back, we're going to talk about House Bill 1095, which is a wage replacement for workers for certain Washington workers excluded from unemployment insurance. And we'll go ahead and start fresh with that one, Patrick, after the break here. So we'll be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. 
for quality done right, call Honkoop Gravel. They use state-of-the-art technology to get your job done in a timely, accurate, and economical way. For projects as small as refreshing the driveway and as large as a multi-million dollar builder-ready plat development. Their services include multi-unit site preparation, fire line installation, drainage systems, house foundations, and more. They'll do custom projects too, turning your dream idea into a reality. If you need site work, you need the team at Honkoop Gravel in Linden or at honkoop.com. Ready to make your change? Make a positive change in our community? Become a Lydia Place housing hero. Much like dropping your change into a piggy bank, your monthly donation to Lydia Place will provide much-needed support to families experiencing homelessness in Whatcom County by providing housing, education, and mental health counseling on their path to stability. And with the Lydia Place monthly giving programs, it's easier than ever for you to make an impact. Choose to donate $5 or more each month or register your credit card online to join their Roundup program, which rounds every transaction up to the next dollar donating the difference to Lydia Place's programs. No matter how you give, your monthly donation will provide emergency support to families in our community, and Lydia Place families will rest easier knowing your monthly contribution is something they can count on. Make your change add up and become a housing hero online at lydiaplace.org slash donate. Hello, folks. Are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order, but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour. And let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement. Mornings are busy. That's why the KGMI Morning News is your perfect ticket to the world. While you rush to get ready, hear the very latest local, state, and national news. Your KGMI AccuWeather forecast, sports with Mark Skolton, the latest money news, and all the information you need for a great start to your day. The KGMI Morning News, 6 to 9 a.m. each weekday on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. Deadly tornadoes swept through the south, causing widespread damage. In Selma, Alabama... You can hear some crashing and that kind of thing. And I thought when I got out of the basement that I wouldn't have a house. Whole lot of unanswered questions about classified documents found at two separate Biden locations. Special counsel Robert Hur has been appointed to investigate, and our Adriana Diaz tells us House Republicans announced another investigation into the found documents. We'll issue subpoenas if they don't respond. Kentucky's James Comer spoke to CBS's Catherine Herridge. You have to treat Joe Biden the same way that, that Donald Trump was treated. The U.S. may run out of money soon. Our Catherine Herridge says Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's asking Congress to act fast. Yellen informed lawmakers that once the limit is reached, the Treasury will start taking, quote, extraordinary measures to prevent a default, like delaying some payments. CBS News Brief. I'm Stacey Lynn. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. And we have with us Patrick O'Connor. Patrick Connor. I keep saying old, but Patrick Connor, who's the state director for the National Federation of Independent Business. And we're discussing proposed legislation that came up this week in the first week of the state legislature. And let's continue with, with House Bill 1095, talking about a wage replacement program for Washington workers excluded from unemployment insurance. Patrick? Thanks again, Dick. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, I don't think anybody would be surprised to learn that there are undocumented workers uh, who have jobs in Washington state, and if they're 
status is discovered, it under federal law makes him ineligible for benefits under the the unemployment insurance benefit system. Um, there are some folks in Olympia who believe that in that case, Washington State ought to find a means of providing basically the equivalent of unemployment benefits for these undocumented workers. That's where this legislation is coming from. Um, obviously, we are concerned for a number of reasons about this bill. Uh, first, once these individuals are discovered to be undocumented, an employer has an obligation then to terminate their employment. Uh, and we're unable to rehire them until they have gone through a process that would make them have a legal status to work in, in the United States. Uh, so that's the first difficulty. Uh, the second is then once we have been made aware, we, we can't keep them on the payroll. We can't bring them back on the payroll again uh, unless there's a change in their status. So that's problematic for us, and the bill does require some sort of strange ways of temporarily keeping records and then disposing of them, which we believe puts um, our employers potentially um, in a bad situation with the federal government who requires that that information be disclosed. Uh, and kept on file. Uh, moreover, the idea of providing benefits, uh, arguing whether or not that's bad or good is neither here nor there at the moment. Our question is, how do we pay for that? So traditionally, for normal unemployment insurance benefits, the employer pays 100% of the tax dollars that go to the Employment Security Department here in Washington State, who then cuts the, the benefit checks to unemployed workers. Um, there's not a clear revenue source for this bill. We don't know if it would be on the backs of employers. We don't know if it would somehow try and come out of the state general fund, in which case it would have to compete uh, with dollars that would normally go to kids for education, uh, that would go to environmental activities, that would go to paying state employees, and any of the myriad other things we do with $60 billion of biennium in our state budget. So uh, not having a clear revenue source, not having a clear funding path, uh, and the questions about whether or not this puts employers afoul of federal law are all reasons for us to have very deep concerns about this bill. Well, I noticed a note in your report about an unemployed applicant with a library card who lives in a motorhome would be eligible for benefits. That's a pretty big reach. Well, it was surprising to me, yes. The eligibility requirements were pretty loose. So on the one end, if the individual were able to obtain a Washington State identification card, driver's license, which they often can, uh, that would be sufficient, but to see that simply having uh, not even a utility bill anymore, that's an option, but not required, uh, but uh, a library card would show that they were a resident of Washington State. So even if they were otherwise unhoused, uh, didn't have an address to list as their home address, that yes, they could have uh, a boat or a van down by the river, <laughs> for those who are Senate Live fans. Uh, or a motorhome and a library card. I mean, that's all it would take in order to establish your status as a resident uh, in Washington State under the provisions of this bill. Wow. Okay, well, let's go on and talk about this public, uh, this wages, uh, requiring certain wages on public works contracts. This one kind of caught my uh, caught my attention because I know a lot of people, of course, a lot of um, employers will go out or, or owner business owners will go out and bid on a contract and, you know, think that they're going to get done within a certain time frame. And then because of regulatory changes or whatever, the job gets delayed. And yet this is an interesting little uh, piece of legislation here that puts that extra wage cost back on the employer. It appears to, yes. So you're absolutely correct. In a public work situation, whether you're building roads or you're doing maintenance for the city of Linden, uh, there are a ton of those kinds of, of uh, contracts out there that a private construction firm, some type of maintenance company might enter into. And oftentimes those can be multi-year projects. So when you, as a contractor, submit your bid to the public entity, you do so based on the prevailing wage that's in effect at the time that you are submitting the bid. So let's say for your general laborer, and I forget what they're at now, but let's just say hypothetically they're at $28 per hour for prevailing wage. And you submit your bid in January of 2023. They make the decision in, say, March, which would be a pretty quick process for some of these bids. Uh, yours is accepted based on what you have submitted as your cost to the project. Uh, and during the course of the next two years that you think the project is going to take, there's a very good chance that prevailing wage is going to change 
uh, once, twice, three times. Now, under current law, uh, you and your employees are locked in to the prevailing wage in effect at the time the bid is submitted. This would turn that on its head so that if it's awarded in March and a new prevailing wage has, has been issued by the Department of Labor and Industries, now the bill would say that you have to pay your workers the additional, say, $2 an hour. Well, that's probably not $2 an hour you estimated in the bid because you were doing it based on the facts. So basically the you're saying the employer could be in this situation but not able, not able to recover that increase it's in un- wages. Yeah, and it's unclear whether the public entity would be forced to uh, accept a, uh, a change order to make up for the difference. Uh, and for some of our small towns, they'd be hard-pressed, I think, to be able to come up with an additional money in their public works budgets in order to meet the changes, particularly if there's two or three escalations of wages during that contract period. Yeah. So, I mean, basically you're put in a situation where a small guy, any contractor working on a public works project, is going to have to do their best to estimate what changes in wages might be uh, and pick the highest number of what could happen 18 months from now instead of what the prevailing wage is now. So, And, and then maybe not get the contract because they did it. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah, or if they do, it may still be insufficient. I mean, we had a report here probably five years ago of a case of a reclassification of vacuum truck drivers in, I think it was uh, the Wenatchee area, where they went from being classified as a truck and tender paying uh, 12 and $15 an hour to being an, uh, an equipment operator owner, or uh, I'm sorry, an equipment operator position being paid $30 an hour. So the prevailing wage doubled overnight uh, because of a reclassification in Olympia by the Department of Labor and Industries through their rulemaking process, their uh, prevailing wage process. So there's no way an employer could guess that their wages were suddenly going to double literally overnight because of the termination of a bureaucrat mm-hmm. sitting at Labor and Industries in Tumwater. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Okay, let's hit on 11, the House Bill 1106, which is qualifications for unemployment insurance when an individual voluntarily leaves work. What this is, what's, what's happening here? <clears throat> yeah, here's another repeat from previous sessions. Um, and it's hard not to be a little bit sympathetic with this, but uh, basically, the bill says the state ought to provide unemployment insurance benefits if I decide to quit my job because I've been assigned to, say, a graveyard shift and now I no longer have access to child care. Um, it's at least the, the concept of the bill is, I think, at least holds the idea that the worker ought to be able to talk to their employer and say, gee, I've got kids, I've only got child care. Uh, during the day shift, I don't have child care available during swinger graveyard, so can you put me back on day shift? Um, you know, in some of those cases, the employer may be able to accommodate, but there are other times where a worker may lose their child care and want a different shift, but the firm is only open for a certain number of hours during the day and may not be able to, to accommodate that. Uh, pardon me. Similarly, the bill says that if I get sick, a member of my family, and not just my immediate family, but my extended family, uh, you know, so if my uh, great aunt is sick and I'm the one that's got uh, to take care of her, decide that I want to, um, there's provisions there that the business owner would have to change my work hours to accommodate the ability of, of me to go take care of that distant relative. Um, which may or may not be affected by my need for child care. So there are a couple of different uh, paths in here uh, in the bill where a person would be able to basically quit their job because they don't like the shift that they're on or they um, are unable to get child care um, and be able to get benefits for that. So Isn't part of this already covered by the family leave bill? Yes, thank you. That's exactly what we've been saying is that the, med- the paid family medical leave program, which we did oppose, uh, already provides partial wage replacement for about 12 weeks per year for uh, these kinds of situations, in addition to the, the birth or adoption of a child, but an individual's own health situation, a family member's health situation. So we're already investing tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in the PFML system for these purposes, and now we're supposed to change the way we do our unemployment system to give benefits to people who uh, decide to quit their job um, because they, they are unable to work with the employer to find a compromise on the shift work uh, that may be available to better accommodate them. So 
Um, I mean, our unemployment system was hard hit during COVID, and that was trying to follow as much as we could the normal rules and making a whole lot of exceptions there. But uh, at some point, we've got to be realistic about the limits we have on the dollars available and the reasons for which those dollars ought to be paid out. Well, I guess I look at it as you know, being a small business employer. Every time you turn around, you've got uh, these additional costs because it's going to come through mm-hmm. to us as a cost. One way or the other, they're going to pass it down to the small, <clears throat> the small business person. He's going to wind up paying for this. And, um, you know, it, I don't know. It just puts an additional load on small business. It's really hard for, you know, especially if you can't raise your, um, your, your uh, you can't raise your, you can't offset it with increases in mm-hmm. the, what your services are. Uh, you can't adjust it quick enough to try to keep up with it. You wind up losing more money. And then all of a sudden you wonder why you're even trying to go out here and hire people. <laughs> well, and our small employers are in what year three of a five year scheduled unemployment insurance rate increase because we're trying to recover from uh, the COVID payouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I will try hard not to remind uh, folks too much about the untold billions of dollars that were lost to Nigerian scammers mm-hmm. <laughs> who did identity theft uh, and collected unemployment insurance checks. But again, it's the employer, not the worker, who pays 100% of the benefits of the dollars that pay out to benefits through the unemployment insurance system. So if every time you add a new class of beneficiaries, every time you expand the number of and type of benefits that are available, mm-hmm. you're putting more pressure to increase rates that are already going up and will be for the next couple of years based on bills already in effect. Okay, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about a uh, Senate bill uh, regarding personal records. Uh, so, Patrick, we'll be back in a minute, and our listeners will be back in a second. Thank you for being with us. Plumbers, electricians, HVAC technicians. These jobs are in demand right now, big time. For every five retiring, just one is entering the trades. As we come into a new year, it's time to change the definition of success and how to achieve it. Hi, I'm Brad Barron, CEO at Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. My grandpa Dan founded Barron over 50 years ago with the goal to provide our community with quality service while supporting his employees with exceptional careers. To carry on his legacy, we're on a mission to prove that a career in the trades is a rewarding one. In his honor, the Barron team created the Dan L. Barron Trades Scholarship, which will provide opportunities to individuals looking to enter the HVAC, electrical, or plumbing trades. Barron will provide two $5,000 scholarships to Bellingham Technical College. Start a new career this new year. Apply today. Applications may be submitted at barronheating.com slash scholarship now through January 31st. Barron, your full-service HVAC, electrical, and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. Wilson's Furniture's winter sale is going on now. Your chance to save store-wide on living, dining, bedroom furniture and mattresses at the best prices of the year. Stop at Wilson's Furniture today. It's Wilson's Furniture's annual winter sale going on now. Wilson's on Pacific Highway in Ferndale. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Sign up for the CHS Northwest Propane Autofill Program and receive a cellular tank monitor with no monitoring fees. Plus, you'll be able to review your daily tank level readings from your smartphone or tablet. CHS Northwest, everything you need for home and farm. Online at chsnw.com. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. And we have with us a guest, Patrick Connor, State Director for the National Federation of Independent Business. And we are talking about uh, legislation that is before this week's le- This legislature should open up this week down in Olympia. Uh, we're going to continue now to talk about uh, Senate Bill 5061. Uh, Patrick, you said that you have actually testified against this bill. Uh, it's talking about access to personal records. Want to fill us in on what that one is and, and give us a little bit more information? You bet. Uh, 
Uh, Dictus Bill has been around for a couple of years, uh, still hasn't quite been perfected, and still con- contains the same defects that uh, NFIB and others in the business community have complained about for the last two, three years. So it seems simple enough. The bill basically says we want to take an existing um, piece of administrative code in the state and make it into a law, a statute. Um, and the part at hand is that if a current or former employee wants access to their personnel record or a copy of it, electronic or paper, the employer is obligated to provide that information. So the trial association, trial lawyers association is arguing that, well, gee, there's not a penalty there. So if an employer decides they don't want to give the whole file or any of the file to the current or former worker requesting it, there's nothing that labor ministries or anybody else can do about it um, other than to, I guess, file suit and uh, if there's some need to do that in order to get those records. So this bill takes what is already sort of a bad piece of regulation and would make it into a worse piece of law. Um, <clears throat> one of the provisions that we have complained about and will continue to complain about until it's fixed is that Washington State is an at-will state, meaning that, um, as I testified, if my boss is listening in and they don't like the tie that I'm wearing, they don't like the the tone of my voice, then under an at-will system, I could be terminated uh, simply because that's the will of the employer. Um, The provision of the bill says, though, that and the current regulations, that the uh, worker would be able to demand the employer provide a signed statement explaining the reason for whatever separation of employment occurred. Uh, Sounds simple enough, but depending upon what you put on that paper with your signature as a small employer, who knows if you're subjecting yourself to the possibility of future litigation. Um, So it's unclear whether we can simply say Washington is an at-will state and it was our decision to terminate this worker Unclear if you can say that. It's unclear if you would be able to say the worker was fired for misconduct, if you would have to denote what that misconduct was, uh, if you could simply say lack of work, project ended. Uh, there's really no direction. So we've asked for better clarification in the bill as to what are acceptable answers, or at least give the agency some rulemaking authority to be able to help employers better understand how to comply in a way that doesn't put them on the hook to be sued for wrongful termination later on. So your summary uh, uh, indicates that the uh, senator, I assume, running the hearing has indicated that she would be willing to cons- uh, to reconvene a stakeholder meeting on this one and discuss it further. Is that going to happen? Or oh, Well, we hope so. Um, that has been shared uh, secondhand by some other lobbyists. Uh, the sponsor has said that she's willing to consider it, at least consider bringing some of us together. So we hope that's one of about three different concerns we have about the bill that needs to be addressed. Great fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other two issues are even more complex. So, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's move on here to Senate Bill 5123, which is the uh, concerning of the, the employment of individuals who lawfully consume cannabis. Yes. <clears throat> sounds like that's going to be another interesting one. Yep, uh, and again, it's a repeat. So we've had a chance to talk about this for a couple of years now. But basically, uh, the bill sponsor uh, believes that because marijuana use or, or cannabis use is legal in Washington state, even though it's still against federal law, that employers should not be able to refuse to employ somebody based on a pre-employment uh, drug analysis uh, or drug test. And so, uh, I mean, that's difficult enough for employers who are expected to make sure that not just all of their workers return home safely, but their customers are safe as well. So, for those who operate heavy equipment um, uh, or, I don't know, maybe a meat slicer in a deli, uh, who do deliveries, uh, company vehicles, uh, it, there are any number of sensitive positions where you need to make sure that somebody is not under the influence of alcohol or drugs while they're on the job site. So we're concerned about how this may limit the ability of employers to maintain a safe workplace. Um the other side argues, well, gee, it's legal what they do in their own time is their own business. But there's not a test out there right now, Dick, that can tell if uh, the drug somebody may have taken, the cannabis somebody may have consumed uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, or 10 minutes ago, 
what the difference is as to when they had it and whether or not it's still influencing their actions and behavior. So we're concerned about that. And then it gets into the question of, well, gee, this is just a, a ban on um, refusing to consider somebody to be hired based on a pre-employment drug screening. You can still drug test later on. Well, if you're a small contractor and you're calling people out of the, the hall to do work, you don't get to pick who those individuals are. They show up the morning that you ask for them, and you have no way of, of knowing. So are you going to be on the hook? You won't be able to do testing. Well, you know, so uh, there are some concerns there, and the bill sponsor has said she's willing to have further conversations to try and help uh, clarify what's expected. But I yes, mean, basically, this has got to be really a tough forward. one, especially when you consider all the labor issues out there now, as far as hiring yeah. employees, getting employees, the numbers available, and you know the the especially in the construction industry, just the availability of laborers is just uh, really really creating a lot of problems in that yep. industry and right now. Absolutely, at least construction or parts of it would be exempt. The rest of us would not. So. Um, you know, there's also the question, too, about a level playing field because while construction is dangerous, it's not the only dangerous occupation out there. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, you had a little positive note out here about, and this, is like, <laughs> this one's coming back, too, about the right to repair uh, uh, cell phones. I thought that was an interesting one. You want to spend some time on that one? You bet. And thank you, guys. It was nice to have some silver lining to talk about. <laughs> so NFIB has, for the last uh, couple of years, supported uh, Representative Mia Gregerson's bill, the so-called right to repair uh, personal electronic devices uh, legislation. So um, <clears throat> there are some manufacturers. I'm not sure that you want me to name the one in particular. Uh, I see the name Apple on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I'll mention it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Just didn't want to get anybody in trouble. Um but Apple in particular is a holdout that does not want to provide your local electronic repair shop with uh, reasonable access to the tools, instructions, parts, schematics uh, that might be needed for a local repair shop to be able to uh, safely and effectively repair your iPhone, your Mac, uh, your iPad, those kinds of things. Uh, the bill basically says, look, Apple and the rest of you who are not already doing this, and almost all the rest of you are, we understand, but Apple, give these small repair shops or an individual device owner the opportunity to purchase the tools, the replacement parts, the instructions that are needed in order for uh, either the cell phone owner, his or herself, uh, or a local repair shop to be able to fix these things instead of having to send them back into Apple um, or, um, you know, I guess Best Buy is certified to, to take these items. Uh, I don't think many Best Buys do the repairs there. I think they just basically bag them up, send them off back to Apple. And then Apple often sends you a, you know, a replacement device rather than actually repairing and returning the device you've put in. So uh, Individuals, uh, individual consumers then get stuck having to drive to Seattle or wherever your closest Apple store is in order to be able to try and get a repair uh, or your local Best Buy um, or having to send these things back in. And most of them end up in the dump, you know, in a scrap heap uh, when they could have been repaired. So it's just a little strange that Apple is a holdout when almost every other electronic device manufacturer is willing to provide this information to your local repair shops. So this is so a bill you expect to be safe. introduced again this next week. I remember seeing it last year and kind of chuckling about yes. it at the time. But uh, Yep. Uh, so we're working to make sure that there is strong bipartisan support for the bill. Uh, it's being brought by a uh, Democrat member of the House. The um, House Republicans' deputy leader is signed on as the lead co-sponsor. And so we uh, at NFIB have been meeting with some of our members who are legislators uh, to help uh, explain our concerns about the bill and the reason our concerns, our support for the bill, and why we think it's a good idea to give uh, consumers access to more competition, more opportunities to have their devices fixed. Well, it's and also just, away. <clears throat> just the idea of convenience as much as anything. Absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, and my iPad goes price. out and I need it, and I use it. And I you, I open it up and use it, especially at night at home, two three times mm -hmm. sometimes. And of course, we live with our cell phones these days. So, yes. uh, you know, how do we uh, how do we manage our life while we're waiting to send this thing someplace to get repaired? Bad enough, you have to drop it off at a shop and wait for it. Right, but it'll be a lot easier to be able to take this to somebody in Bellingham and have it fixed. 
Yeah. Then they have to drive to Seattle and have them send it out and wait for replacement. And well, we got about see, a minute left here. Oh, okay. Do you see anything else coming down the pipeline that we should be uh, alerting members to? And I'm going to mention this while we're at it. If you should want to communicate with Patrick, you can do so at patrick.connor at nfib.org. That's patrick.connor at nfib.org. So if you've got issues that, uh, as a small business owner especially that you're looking at, you would like to communicate with Patrick, you're able to do that. So anything else we got? Maybe 30 seconds now. Well, we're always going to be on the watch for tax increases affecting our members, whether it's higher workers' comp, higher unemployment insurance, higher B&O taxes, and uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to talk about the possibility of replacing the B&O tax with something akin to the Texas margins tax that would uh, tax your adjusted gross, not your gross receipts for a business. So we're a little bit excited about that. Uh, details forthcoming. Well, I think a lot of it depends on what happens to the state. It's the state lawsuit on the uh, quote so-called excise tax that we have here. So uh, that could help determine that one too. Hey, Patrick, thanks for being with us. We'll bring you back in about a month. Uh, we'll look at our schedules and see what's coming down the pipeline and look forward to having you again. So thanks for taking some time out on your busy schedule. Appreciate My it. pleasure. Thanks, yeah. Dick. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for our listeners. Don't forget about our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. you got questions for me, you can always give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks and have a great week. Voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.